Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're in a two-part series, and we'll close out today. <clears throat> we were looking at the humiliation of Christ last week, and again, the whole passage, and we will be reading pieces of this throughout this message, so... <clears throat> But I want you to see that the main part of the passage is verses 5 to 11. And many commentators consider this an early church hymn. That this was probably being sung, obviously in the Greek, uh, at churches. Okay, To remember the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. It was putting everything in, in perspective. Again, remember, first century, uh, the church was being persecuted. They were being hunted down, not at first, but as time went on. And they needed that encouragement of knowing that, you know what, they're on the winning team. <laughs> that no matter what was happening in the temporal realm, Jesus Christ conquered. Jesus Christ is coming back. He is the reigning king. So this is an early church hymn, which also is interesting because verses 5 to 11 is so saturated with theology. It reminds us of this, that if, if we're going to sing a hymn, make sure it's saturated with theology. If we're going to sing a praise song, it should be saturated with theology. This is referring to Christ, not only his humanity, but obviously his deity. This passage goes from eternity past to eternity future and encompasses a time. This is who Christ is. And so again, an early church hymn. And this hymn, the reason they were singing it was, again, had application to their own life. In fact, uh, th this is literally verses 5 to 11 is the illustration that Paul is given because he's just given the exhortation. Really, before that, he was given the application. And, and let, me, let me lay this out for you. If you start in chapter 2, verse 1, is the reality. Okay, look what he says. Therefore, if, if there's any consolation in Christ, and I'm just going to read a couple footnotes in my study Bible, but the word consolation means encouragement. It, comes, it means to come alongside and help and counsel and exhort, and it's referring to the Lord. In other words, if you have been encouraged by the Lord and comforted and, and, uh, and exhorted by Him, or any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love... Again, I'm just going to the footnote. Translate comfort portrays the Lord coming close in whispering words of gentle cheer and tender counsel in the believer's ear. <laughs> I mean, is the Lord ministering to your heart? That's what Paul's saying in verse 1. If the Lord's ministering in your heart. And then the next one. Uh, if any fellowship of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit's in your life. The Spirit is in partnership, is working in your life. And then finally, if any affection and mercy. In other words, if you're really saved walking with Jesus. That's what verse 1 is saying. This, is, this should be the reality. This is the reality of your life if you're a Christian, right? The Lord's working. The Spirit's working. You should sense mercy. You should sense grace. So that's the reality, verse 1. Number, verse, uh, verse 2 is the application of that. Fulfill my joy by what? Being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says, listen, if the Lord is ministering in your heart, then work towards unity, endeavoring to keep the unity of the, of the spirit and the bond of peace. Is that the right? Did I say that correct? I think I did. All right, but the point is you have to uh, preserve unity. That's the point of Ephesians 4. Preserve unity. If Christ is working in your life, if Christ is in your life, if the spirit's in your life, then work towards unity. And that's what verse 2 is about. See, that's, that's the application. Be of same mind. Be of same love. And then he gives the command, the exhortation. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That's pride, you know, um, or conceit. That's all pride stuff. You know, it's all about me. Uh, really, it's, I'm, you know, the world should revolve around me, uh, me-centered, you know. Um, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, or conceit. But what? In humility of mind, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Don't, it's not about you. It's about because Christ is in your life, verse 1, you should have the same love and yet love should be transferred to esteeming others. And then 
even better than yourself, which is, is unnatural. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So there's this sequence. Uh, we jump into verse 5 because it's, uh, it's the passage we're in, but I want you to see the whole context. If you have the reality of Christ in your life, you're going to be working toward unity, verse 2, and the way you work through to unity is because you're humble and you're willing to esteem others better than, than, your, than yourself. Uh, the best way to get factious in a church factions and divisions is by having your own way. Uh, God wants us to love him and therefore work towards, you know, out of humility, we work towards unity. Uh, unity. It's, uh, it's honoring to him for a group of sinful people <laughs> to love him enough that we work together for his purposes, not our own. And so then he, get, he moves from verse 4 to the illustration. So he has the reality then the application, the exhortation, now he gives the illustration. And the illustration is, the, is the, the, the best illustration that could ever be given, and that is the Lord of glory coming to this earth. And not only coming to this earth to live, but coming to this earth to die. Not only to die, but die on a cross. Now, what that should do is just stop each one of us in our tracks. And whatever little petty I want to have it my way should just be thrown out at that point. Once you get through this passage, it should, it should just smite your heart. It should just cut each one of us to the point, no, Lord, I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for you. That's what this illustration uh, should do. And again, if, if indeed uh, verse 1 is reality in your life, consolation of Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, it, that's what it will do. Okay? If it doesn't do that, you've got to really start asking, do I really know Jesus? <laughs> Um, we were downstairs in ABF talking about what does a true Christian look like? Who is a true Christian out of 1 John? And there's three major tests out of 1 John. One, you know who Jesus Christ really is. Actually, this passage is going to look at that. Who he really is, God, man, the Savior, the Lord. Number two, not only who he is, but there should be a true Christian has a love for the brethren out of 1 John. That's a test. If you don't love the brethren, the, uh, John the Apostle would say, you don't know Jesus. And that's really referring in verse 2. You know, as far as, I, uh, same love. No, I love the brethren. But the last is this, that I am willing to obey. That I am willing to obey. So those are the tests. And actually you see them uh, popping out here. Who Christ is, love for the brethren, obeying. Yeah, I'm willing to esteem others. Okay, so that's, that's how it's kind of played out up to verse 5. So now, Paul is entering verse 5 and he's saying, listen, I've told you to be humble. I've told you not to be conceited. I've told you to have the same mind, same love, same unity. I've, I've told you this. I want you to esteem others better than yourself, not looking out for your own interests. Now let me give you the illustration. This should be the capstone. This should be what convinces us, yes, let us live for Christ. And these are steps down from glory. Okay, this is the Lord of glory stepping down. Now, first of all, look at what he says in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, because he's already told us that we should have of one mind, verse 2. But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, as Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Master, your, the, the one who is the, the sovereign over this universe. The one who really matters, okay? We don't matter like we think we matter. See, we, we naturally tend to put ourselves in the middle. And yet, really, from an eternal standpoint, you know why we matter? Because he created us. You know why we matter if you're a Christian? Because he saved you. You know why you matter? Because you're one of his children. But it's all about him. Do we agree with that? It's really all about him. If, if you don't see that, then you're going to really struggle. No, it really is about me. No. No. Um, so, let's have the mind of Christ, uh, also Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, now that first of all sets up his position, his glorious position. And from this point on, I'm just going to review very quickly. First of all, his glorious position is the form of God. That's morphe. And morphe means the essential essence. We saw that last week. The essential essence. Jesus Christ immediately Paul presents, we're talking about God. We are talking about eternal God who never changed anything but always being God. Okay, we've got to get that. So he says, um, in the being in the form of God, or New American says, although he existed in the form, and we think a form is external, this is the word that means internal. He is always God. 
So no matter what we talk about for the rest of this passage, that's the umbrella. He's God. He's the sovereign one. But now he starts these steps down. His humiliation, his glorious position is going to be left and he's now going to humble himself. And do you see how this application plays out to us? Christ humbled himself. God the Father is going to now say, will you as one of his children uh, humble yourselves? So first of all, Christ first stepped down. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And the word robbery is obviously used of robbers. Something taken that wasn't his or holding on to something because he, want, he thought he could lose it. And in both senses, he didn't, he didn't take something that wasn't his, it was already his, but not only that, but he, he, he wasn't like, oh, I'm afraid of losing it, like that death grip of I've got to have this. He, he released, he, he did not consider it robbery to be with God. He was, he, he is God, he's the second person of the Trinity. So first step down, he didn't consider it robbery. Step two, he made himself of no reputation. He, he emptied himself, not of deity, not of deity, but by taking on an additional human nature. So now divine nature, human nature together but not mixed, that's, that's emptying himself. That's part of it. Uh, emptying himself is not subtraction, it's addition for Christ. So it's stepping down because he now is going to come as a man, as you see. But not only that, but he gave up heavenly glory. He gave up the independent use of his attributes. Uh, I only do what my father says. He became a servant of all servants. He, he's stepping down from glory of glory to now uh, service and being led by the Spirit perfectly, where he could even say, um, no man knows the, the time I return, only the Father. He, even at that point, he didn't know. He knows now because he's back at glory, but he didn't know that time. So he's stepping down, made himself um, even to the point of being willing to break fellowship with God when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's step two. Do you see these steps? Step three, taking the form. That's the word morphe again of a bondservant. So he's not only in the form of God, verse six, but he's the form of a servant. He, he didn't just come looking like a slave because the word slave. He didn't just look like a slave, the form of a servant, the form of a slave. He actually, his, his intrinsic attitudes were of a slave. He was a slave, a slave to God's will, okay? Not my will, but yours be done. That's step three, form of a bondservant. He didn't just put on the garment superficially of a slave, he actually became a slave. Uh, he did not come to be served, but to serve and what? Give his life. A ransom for what? Many. By the way, not all. <laughs> Many. Uh, step four, in coming in the likeness of men. Uh, this is not referring to like total man. He, this is referring to, he looks just like a normal man. Part of the human race. As I said last week, he, he didn't have a halo over his head. Like when you looked at Jesus, you didn't say, oh, he's different because he's got this halo over his head. Like so many pictures, you know, portraits of him. No, he came in the likeness of men. He, uh, this is, again, referring to the, what we, the theologians call hypostatic union, that one person, but two natures. One person, two natures. Divine nature, human nature. Now, why, did, why is that important? Because as a human, as God-man, he could represent humanity and go to the cross and die for our sin. And you say, well, how could one man die and his death be able, to, um, be able to have application to millions of people? Because he's the God-man. His death had not just one value, it had infinite value. His death had infinite value. So he came in the likeness of men. And then step four, and being found in appearance as a man. Now again, that's talking about the schema. Um, um, Appearance, you know, he, 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 he was a baby. Oh, what is that one verse uh, that we just sang it at? And no crying he makes. No, that's wrong. He would have cried. He would have cried, right? I mean, when he was hungry, he would have cried. By the way, what is crying with a baby? Uh, Dad, you can't help. Go get mom, right? 
No, nothing wrong with crying. I mean, sometimes these, you know, these songs we sing, no, he, no, he, he looked like a baby. He was a baby. He, he was a child. By the way, when he was a baby, he wasn't looking at Mary and saying, you know, Mary, you don't realize it, but you're holding the Son of God. Remember, he set aside his omniscience. He learned. Luke 2 talks about uh, wisdom of God and man. I mean, he learned just like a normal child. Now, again, protected by the Spirit of God. Protected from... And he couldn't sin because he was intrinsically holy, okay? So, I mean, I'm not talking growing up like a child, like your child grows up. Your child, that terrible twos really are the terrible twos, right? I mean, with Jesus, it wouldn't have been the... He might have made it, you know, like, oh, no, 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 Jesus, I don't want you to touch that candle. Okay, yes, Mommy. But he learned, okay, not to touch the candle because the candle could burn him, okay? Uh, We got to... I think we think of him as like... No, I mean, he grew like a child. He continued to grow. It wasn't until... One commentator said probably when 12 or 13 that, that everything was starting to be put that, for his purpose on this earth. See, he grew like a child. He looked like a man. He acted like a man. Not, not sinfully, right? Yet without sin. Uh, but again, appearance. And then he humbled himself. Verse, uh, step six is verse eight. He humbled himself. That's important. Himself. He's getting back to what Paul is saying. He humbled himself. It wasn't God humbling him. He came to do the will, but he was, he was a servant at heart. His very intrinsic essence, servant at heart. And then the seventh step down, he became obedient to the point of death. Again, to do the Father's will, because Romans 5 says, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Obedience, and that's talking about his substitutionary sacrifice. So, what have we seen? As man, Christ could represent man and die as a man. As God, the death of Christ could have infinite value. So you have the God-man. Sufficient to provide forgiveness, redemption, salvation for the sins of all those who would ever put their complete trust in his sacrifice on their behalf. So that's what we have, him stepping down. And if Christ could step down and die, what should we? What should our response be to this illustration? Yes, Yes, Lord, I want to serve you as in, the, in the example that you have given. And then finally, I, even death on a cross, I mean the most excruciating, painful, shameful, degrading, cruel, you know, a Jew was just mortified that you could even tell a Jew that the Messiah hung on a tree because a cross was considered a piece of wood tree. And, you know, that, that was the stumbling block for the Jews. You're telling me the Messiah came and he died? Not only did he die, he died on a cross? Yes, why? Because of his humiliation. He took, he, he did the ump degree of humiliation for our, our salvation. For the, actually, for our salvation, for his purpose, I mean, for the Father's purpose and for his exaltation, he came and even died on, on, on the cross. So as... As John Wolverd says, and I think this is really great. I mean, Wolverd is a theologian, a theologian, but he, he just made this really practical application. He says, how little our sacrifices, our acts of unselfishness, and our suffering the slights of men seem in the shadow of the cross. The more you look at the cross, you're like, I thought I was sacrificing. And in the shadow of the cross, you know, this is just my duty, just my duty. So that's the first part. That's verses 5 to 8. And we just went through it literally piece by piece. Therefore, verse 9. Therefore. Now, what do you mean therefore? Transition. Who was, who was under focus in verses 6 through 8? Christ. Christ is the one in the form of God. Christ is the one that gave up glory. Christ is the one that came in likeness of man an appearance of a man. Christ is the one that humbled himself. Christ is doing the actions. Okay? Which is very instructive for us. When God calls us to be humbled, he doesn't say, uh, I want Donna to be humbled and, uh, you know, you other people, make sure she is. She would... I'm using Donna because she's a dear friend. (laughs) Right? No. Donna, because of my sacrifice, because of my example, I want you to be humble. I want you to... Uh, this is what it means to magnify Christ. Really, I mean, when we talk about humility, I mean, walking with Jesus, Christ likeness, this is what we're talking about. Being like he was, is. <laughs> I say was, 
He was there at this point, but he is. Okay? He's still a servant. He still, we're going to see in a moment, intercedes for, uh, for his uh, children. For his, right? So, therefore, and let me read this passage, um, 9 through 11. Therefore God has also, also has hi- highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those in earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's transition. Now, it's no longer uh, the Lord's actions, it's the Father's actions. I want you to see that. Verses 9 to 11, it's the Father. He's going to act. Because the Son acted out of humility, the Father is now going to act. In fact, if you... You know, kind of put this in the back of your mind. Remember in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. Despised the shame means to think little of. In other words, with everything he had to go through, it still was little in the sense of all that was given to him because of his sacrifice. Okay? So despising the shame, the shame that he had to go through was little in comparison to his exaltation and his sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. But who for the joy that was set before him, what joy? Well, I've always said, well, the joy there is, you know, the joy of being able to bring a person that is a sinner condemned to himself and be able to forgive their sin. And that's part of it. That is part of it. If you're here today and never received Christ, in other words, your sin is on you and it is condemning you. It is God's wrath is over you even though you don't feel it. Spiritually it is. And your sin will weigh you down and it will ultimately condemn you to hell. And you never received Christ. You can go to Christ, return from your sin, turn to Him and He will forgive you. All right, he will forgive you because he is the Lord Christ. He's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's part of that joy, for the joy that was set before him. That someday, take me for an example, when I was about 13 years old, he gave me understanding, I received him, and based on his sacrifice, I received Christ, and he saved little Johnny Prince. For the joy that was set before him, that he saved Donna Ryan and Lee Ryan and Mike Stewart and Ethan and... Well, I don't want to go... Actually, I can't see much fast, farther than you. Know, I don't have my glasses on. So you're kind of like a blur. The blur, the run, those that are out there that are saved. Okay? For the joy, but you know what else? There's some other joys. I think even greater joy than that. The fact is that he was obedient to the Father's will. That's, what, that's part of the joy. The joy that was set before him, that he did the Father's will. But let me give you this one that's in this passage. Not only that but that he was going to be exalted. Because after Christ's humiliation comes Christ's exaltation. And that's the joy that was set before him, that he would be highly exalted. See, that's what it says in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name, that is, right? Highly. So let me give you three points off of this passage. First of all, the source of Christ's exaltation. And again, It's no longer Christ doing the action, it's God the Father doing the action. Because he was obedient, humbled, now it's God's turn. Because this is my beloved son, let me show you what I will do for him. Now, an unbelievable application to the Philippians, right? People at Philippi, all right, they're suffering. By the way, where's Paul at at this point? Paul is in where? Jail. Jail. Right, this is a prison epistle. So God wants you to say, God wants us to know this. Listen, I don't know which situation you're in, and I don't know what you're sacrificing for God. And I don't even know if you're, you are sacrificing for God. But if you're sacrificing for God, and you are humbling yourself and doing what He wants, just understand that the humiliation that you're enduring right now cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed. Because just like Christ was humbled and then exalted, so the believer is now living in a world that hates you. And there are many times that you have to be, you, you are humbling yourself and esteeming others better than yourself. But just wait, there's a coming a day of exaltation. It's all worth it. 
it will be worth it all, right? It really will. That's what this passage. So the source is, is God. This is God the Father's response to Christ's obedience. And if you want to put a little um, principle down, I didn't put this in your outline. Uh, humility has its reward. That's the principle. Humility has its re reward. This is a kingdom principle. This is a truism. The, the truism is this. Um, like you can write some of these verses down if you'd like. Matthew 23, 13. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's a, that's a truism. That's, that's God's principle. Listen, you humble yourself, just know that you will be rewarded and exalted. You, you try to get your way, you try to do it your way. Oh, it might look like you have your way, but it will only last as long as you live. Okay? Only last as long as you're on this earth. It may not even last that long. Uh, remember the Pharisee and the, the tax gatherer? The Pharisee went away still in his sin. The tax gatherer, tax gatherer went away justified. At the end of that little passage, it says this, I tell you, this man went, oh, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who, exalt, and, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now there he's talking about salvation. See there, that's salvation. You've got to humble yourself. What do you mean? And, and when, when I got saved, when a person gets saved, what do they have to do? They have to say, you know what? You're right. I am a sinner. I'm a transgressor, I'm rebellious, I'm against God's law, and I deserve every bit of condemnation that God gives me because I did it. I'm, thou art the man, I am the sinner. That's, that's being humble, not blame shifting. You know the reason I sinned? My mother, she just wasn't a very good woman. Oh, I hope, don't put that on the tape. <laughs> <laughs> No, my, I love my mother. I'm going to see her in a little bit. But the point is, is this. You take full responsibility for your actions, for your attitudes, for your hard attitudes, right? I am a sinner, and I deserve God's condemnation. But I now understand that Christ went to the cross and died for sinners. And his, because he's the God-man, it was complete. He was able to say, it is finished. All my sins were placed on him, and I want to receive him and what he did for me on the cross. See, that's humility, saying, I can't solve my problems. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That Our, our salvation is all of God. It's, it's the Lord that saves. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. James 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you. You see this principle over and over in Scripture. Now, Again, that's not just for salvation, though. That's for Christian living. If you humble yourself, God will ultimately exalt you. If you seek to have your way, my purposes, my goals, I'm going to build my kingdom, you know what God will do? He will actually work against you. Because it is all about Him and not us. Okay? Or as one person, I think, summarized this whole truth very well. Again, you have a truism. And it comes from the mouth of the Lord and Peter and James and Paul. I mean, again, what I just read. The truism is simply that one who humbles himself is the one that God's going to exalt. The one who lifts himself up is the one whom God will humiliate. <laughs> again, this is a truism. This is a principle in the divine economy of things. It is by giving. Now, I want you to catch these. It is by giving that a person receives. It is by serving that a person is served. It is by losing one life, one's life that one finds it, and it is by dying to self that one lives. It is by humbling oneself that he is exalted. And, and one follows the other as surely as night follows day. Self-sacrifice and humility will be rewarded by God. It's always rewarded. But again, what, is the, what does the human flesh want? Me. See, this is where the Spirit has to work in our lives and says, you know what, John Prince, it's not about you. In fact, is I, I wish I had been doing a journal for the last 20 years because that would be one of the things that you would probably see in my journal so clearly. John Prince, years ago, always wanted to get his way. Quite honestly, I created problems in 
like the elders board and the deacon board. Lee Ryan and the other, the older elders here. Okay, I'll say the older elders. The men had to, had to put up with me in my 30s and 40s were very gracious. I want you to know that. I mean, I'm not saying the guys now aren't gracious, but I'm just saying back then, because I was very self-willed. And what, did, what was God teaching me? I didn't realize that. I wish I had this message. I wish somebody would have said, you know what, this is what he's teaching you, John. Get it today, because you're going to have to get it tomorrow if you don't get it today. Hey, humble yourself. Be a servant. Be willing to give. Be willing to bend. I mean, on the right things. Be willing to do what someone else wants. Right? Because that's... See, God says, listen, you humble yourself, I'll exalt you. How do you know that? Look at my son. Look at my son. That's what's happened to him. Okay? So, you know, are we releasing to God? Okay? Or are we just trying to gain for this life? Are we storing up treasures in heaven? Are we, or, or, or to say it this way, remember when Jesus left the glories and emptied himself, he released. He didn't grasp. He released the privileges, the responsibilities, the blessings that he had as second person of the Trinity, okay? He came as a veiled, didn't see his glory. You saw his humanity, you didn't see his glory. Only, on the, only at the transfiguration for a moment did you see the glory, okay? But I, I just keep thinking like this. With the privileges and the responsibilities and the ability to serve and everything else that you have, is your hand like this? Because as I'm getting older, I'm realizing I'll probably start losing some things. It might be things of financial, it might be things of health, it might be things of being able to uh, comp. But am I, am I, do I have an open hand? Lord, I'm just your servant. This is not the end all. I want to be humble because I want to be able to be rewarded by you. Okay, do you, do you live life with an open hand? I hope you do. So anyways, God is going to highly exalt him. Let's look at these steps. Uh, highly exalted. And you say, well, how can you highly exalt God? Jesus is God. Morphe of God. Fully God. How do you, how do you exalt God? I mean, that's God. <laughs> well, wait a second. He was highly exalted before his incarnation, but now he is exalted because he's not just God. He is the God-man. And he has accomplished some things that weren't accomplished in eternity past with redemption and total obedience, even obedience to death on a cross. So what I'm saying is, there, that is true, that, that this, is, this is not just God the Father exalting him, he is super exalting him. I mean, that's the, literally the word, hyper-upso, hyper-upso. Hyper is, means active, and he's going to do it, right? Um, he's going to super exalt Christ for his obedience. First one, first step up was Christ's resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved two things. One is that he was who he said he was. Okay, he, he proclaimed himself before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal one. At his resurrection, Romans 1 verse 4 says, and declared to be the son of God, and a little bit later in the verse, by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proved that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. That is the Son of God. Eternal God. But not only that, the resurrection proved that, he, that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. Okay, So when you look at the resurrection, it's that yes, his sacrifice paid the penalty because God was so pleased he raised him from the dead. You can find this in Acts 2 verse 32. Uh, this Jesus, God... God the Father, has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. See, this same Jesus, that in, in, the, in the context, he was preaching Christ's salvation. And he said, this Jesus he raised. So we know that our sins can be forgiven by Christ because he was raised from the dead. So the, the first step up, like, you know, he's down on earth. What's the first step to glory? Resurrection. Next step, ascension. Okay, the next step up is ascension. Like in John 20, verse 17, when Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection, he said this, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. He had not yet ascended. Resurrection had happened, not ascension. Acts 1, verse 9, it says that a cloud received him out of their sight. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 said he was received up into glory. 
So, first step up, resurrection. Second step, ascension. Third step, coronation. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, his coronation. Uh, Acts 2, verse 30. He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. Okay, well actually that last part is talking about he sends the Spirit to us. But Christ, so his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, he he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. In other words, coronation... The idea is this, he has the right to rule. He, he already said that to his disciples in John 5. He says, the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. But at that point, he was still incarnation. Now he's sitting on the throne. He is ruling and reigning and moving everything according to his will. In fact, when we were in Revelation, remember he got the scroll? What did that scroll represent? It was the title deed to the universe. Why? Because it's in, it's in his coronation, the Father hands the title deed to the universe to the Son and says, it's, it's, you are the one that's going to judge. You are the one that's going to um, uh, hand out uh, determination of everything. Okay, uh, the rewards, the, the judgments. You know, it's, he's going to, because the right hand, it always says the right hand of God, Right hand always is a symbol of power and authority. He's been given the power and authority to judge all things. The Father doesn't judge. The Father has given the judgment to the Son. So, uh, remember when Stephen was being stoned? I mean, can you imagine being stoned? You know, you're, sometimes they bury you halfway up, and they throw, or else they just gather around you and throw in. I mean, this man needs encouragement. He's dying for his faith. What does it say of Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God? So no matter all these people that are throwing these stones, and Lord, I'm about ready to die, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. You know what? I'm on the winning team. Stephen, no. I'm going to be safe and secure in just moments. How about the fourth one? Fourth step up, intercession. By the way, your, your um, notes do not go in this order. I put number six, as, step six is intercession, but the more I thought of it, it's like, no, actually, uh, resurrection has happened. Ascension has already happened. He's already been coronated. Now, the world doesn't see his coronation. They will someday when he comes back to rule the world and set up his earthly kingdom, but he is at the right hand of the Father. But the next thing that's a step is really his intercession. Okay, so you might want to put six and put it up and say that's four step. Because that is happening right now. Um, Romans 8 verse 34, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Now notice, he died, risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Okay, so I mean, even in that, uh, Paul says, listen, he died, he rose again, obviously he's ascended because he's at the right hand of God, and what is he doing at the right hand of God? He's interceding for us, he's interceding, because we've got this accuser out there called the devil, always accusing the brethren. No, John, look at all the crap that John Prince does, covered by the blood. I mean, how could you ever use him? Covered by the blood. Spirit-filled. All right? Does that to each one of you. Interceding. Interceding. Do you see how that's a glory? Do you see that's how super-exalted Christ is? See, he didn't have that privilege before that. Before he came and died for us. But now he's able to rise, ascend, coronation, and intercession. Super-abundantly exalted his son. Giving him a name... Well, let's not go too far. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. You might want to write um, verse 25. It says, Therefore he, that's Christ also, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love that. He always lives to make intercession for you. For such a high priest was fitting for us, 
who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners. I mean, he's always... And yet, what is it? Let me see here. Uh, I, I don't have this written down, so I may take... Um, he's able to sympathize with our weakness because he was in all points tested like we are and yet without sin, okay? Why is he such a perfect high priest? Not only because he's the God-man, but because he's the God-man. He was able to be tempted. See, he was tempted with lust. He was tempted with worry. He was tempted with, uh, you know, the devil said, I can give you all this. He was tempted with security of this world. He was tempted like all, and yet, and I'm sure you're saying at this point, yeah, right. He's the God-man. Like, that didn't go very far. No, 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 no. He's the God-man. And therefore, he could be tempted. In fact, he was tempted more than you, by far. I'll tell you why. Because whereas we will capitulate at, um, like, intensity number three, you know, go ahead. Blow up at your wife. It'll make you feel really good. And then we say, yeah, I think I will. Intensity number three. Jesus Christ had intensity 100. And because he was the God-man, he didn't capitulate to the temptation, but he endured the full temptation without sin. Okay? So he is the high priest that can, can understand our temptation. We always capitulate way, way down here. You know, we have some little minor things and we capitulate. And we sin, and then, oh, if we confess our sins, Lord, please forgive me. But he was able to endure. But he's our faithful high priest, making intercession. See, he understands, he knows the temptations we've gone through. And yet he is our high priest who makes intercession. You know, you've got to disciple him more in this area because he's got to get better at understanding and relying on me in this. So he's discipling me here and discipling you there, and he's... He's interceding on our behalf. And you know, when it's all said and done, grace, mercy, and blood. It's my sacrifice, right? That's what he says. Uh, if you read a lot of Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, you know, it's all about the high priest of Christ. So he's interceding. How about let's take the fifth step up. Not only resurrection, ascension, coronation, intercession, but now also distinction. Distinction. Second part of verse 9, and given, or the word is bestowed, bestowed freely, okay, given to him the name, and that's definite article, the name which is above every name. He's given the name which is above every other name. Now, let me quickly say that this name is not Jesus, okay? Like verse 10 says that at the name he didn't say this at the name Jesus. It says he's given a name. Well, he already had that name. He was given that name when, at, when uh, Gabriel announced, you're going to call him Jesus. That's his name. That's his earthly name. That's his human name. That just means Savior, Jehovah. A lot of people had that name, Jesus. Uh, no, this, this is a name that is distinct. And he really doesn't give the name until the very end of verse 11. That Jesus Christ is what? Lord, that's the name. See, the other name is, well, no, Jesus. What do you mean? Well, notice the context. Every knee should bow, every tongue confess. What, what, Jesus? That was already given to him. It means Savior. No, no, Lord is the name. See, that's the title of distinction. That's the more excellent name like Hebrews 1, 4 says. Because a name doesn't just distinguish a person uh, distinguish, I didn't use the word distinction, distinguish a person, you know, like we use our name. Like if you say, all right, so, you know, who is Mike Stewart? Oh, there's Mike Stewart, right? That dis no, this, this brings distinction because a name emphasizes the person's rank, um, the person's qualities, the person's character, you know, what the person was like, okay? And Jesus had many names. You know, um, he had light, door, uh, his name was Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. You can go through Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I mean, name after name after name after name. The Bright and Morning Star, um, Rose of Sharon. Name after name after name. No, no, this is, a, dis this is a, a name that distinguishes him from all others. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why it says, like I say, it's the name. 
He is the Lord. And we're going to be marked out. Uh, by the way, this name Lord, um, when the, the, the Israelites came out of the Babylonian captivity, one of the things that happened is they were reverent towards God. And when they, when they came across the word Jehovah, which would be Yahweh, they, they actually did a couple things. First of all, they, they would not pronounce the name. Well, first of all, they didn't even know the vowels. So they just had the, what do they call it, tectogramagon or whatever it is, but uh, they, just, they just took the consonants. That's all that was there anyways. But they would use the word Adonai. They would not, spay, they would not say the word Yahweh. It was too holy, too precious. When, when, the, when the book was then into the New Testament or the Septuagint, uh, the Old Testament in Greek, they didn't use the word Adonai, they used this word, Kyrios Lord. In other words, that was the form of the word Jehovah that they would speak. They would speak the word Lord. They wouldn't speak the word Jehovah, they would speak the word Lord. Now that's important because what God is doing is this. What you said he was is who I am making him to be. And we saw, by the way, uh, hints of this throughout his life because he would say, you know, uh, you are Lord in God and he would tell the person, you're right, for so I am. And let me see here. Um, he was called Lord both before and after his death 747 times. So it's something that was very common. In other words, it was, not a, it was a common term. It also meant sir. But when God said, I'm going to give him a name that is above every name, he's not saying just sir. He's saying that he is Lord. He is master. He is sovereign. He is God. He is ruler. He is... He is the highest of high, okay? He gave him a superlative of superlatives. He is Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So again, and, and you actually see this uh, in Acts, the transition. Um, you know, where you think you might see in the book of Acts, a lot of times Jesus is referred to as Savior. Actually, he is only referred to twice as Savior in the book of Acts. You can go look it up. He's not... It's not that he's referred to as Savior, but in the book of Acts, 92 times he's referred to as Lord. Right there's emphasis. Two times Savior, 92 times Lord. What, what's the point? When you come to Jesus Christ, are you coming to him simply as your Savior? No, no. You are bending the knee, confessing that he indeed is the Lord and Master who has died for your sins, and you are saying, Lord, I am receiving you as my Lord and Master and Savior. Oh, you're receiving him as your Savior, but he's your Lord, okay? And, and that's with the whole passage. I mean, it just moves right towards that. In fact, one guy, let's see here, I think it was A.W. Tozer, he, he wrote this, to urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is bad teaching. What do you mean bad, uh, divided? Uh, you know, you can receive Jesus as your Savior. And you know what? Yeah, give it maybe four or five years. If later on you want to receive him as your Lord, you can do that. That's bad theology. That's bad teaching. <clears throat> you can, to urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is bad teaching. For no one can receive half a Christ, or a third of Christ, or a quarter of Christ, a quarter of the person of Christ. We are not saved by believing in an office or in a work. We are saved by a person. He is Lord, and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Did you get that? He is Lord. Those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as Savior. Everyone who receives him must surrender to his authority. For to say we receive Christ when in fact we reject his right to reign over us is utterly absurd. It is a futile, futile attempt to hold on to our sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. What kind of salvation is it if we are left in bondage to sin? Now you might say, really? Okay, let me read another passage for you because I want you to know that this is true. And it's in Matthew chapter 7. It's a very familiar passage and it's where they come to him on the final day and these are the damned. And they say to Jesus in verse 21, 721, not everyone, and Jesus is saying it, but this is referring to the damned. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, see, they're using the right name. Lord, Lord. Not every one of those who say, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, now catch this, who does the will 
of my Father in heaven. See, no wait, it's not that you say my name, it's that you have submitted to doing the will of my Father. But then they try to make a case. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, again, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? I mean, man, we were really working for you. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. It's not like I knew you and then you got lost. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, and this is the key, lawlessness. What do you mean lawlessness? See, those who receive Christ as Savior and Lord are going to say, Lord, you saved me, and now I will follow you because your word says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's what he tells us, right? But when it says, you who practice lawlessness, what that means is, you said that I was your Savior. You said I was your Lord. But you kept practicing lawlessness. And that is in the uh, continuous. That doesn't mean you struggled, confessed, struggled with sin, confessed. That means your heart was bent on doing your own thing. Depart from me. I think that's where, I think on the day of judgment, there's going to be a whole lot of, wow, I thought that person was a Christian. Right? No, no. A Christian is one who follows Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's see. We've got to hurry to this last step. Fifth step, or actually sixth step. Sixth step up, okay? So we have um, high priest. He's intercessing. He's been given a name that is above every name. And let's, let's see if that's true. Verse 10, and then at the, at the name of Jesus, not the name Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, what? Is Lord. That's why they bow. They didn't bow to him when he was Jesus on this earth. But they're going to bow to him as Lord. He's, he is Lord. And, and notice, notice the two things. One, you have the, the knees bowing and the tongues confessing. And I, if you write this verse in Isaiah 55, verse, or 45, verse 22, because in Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah prophesied about God. And this is what it says. Look to me and be saved. This is God speaking. Look to me and be saved, all you the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and, and shall not return, that to me every knee will bow. See, that's a, that's a prophecy of Isaiah actually referring to Christ. He says, I am God <laughs> and every knee will bow. What do you mean every knee will bow? Well, Paul takes that from Isaiah and says, listen, this is, this is who they're going to bow to. It's Christ. And the next verse, the next part of that verse, Isaiah 45, verse 23b, and every tongue shall take an oath. See, every, every tongue will confess. Every tongue will say, yes, he is Lord. Now let's go back. So every, every knee will bow. What, of those in heaven? That's holy angels and the redeemed saints. Those are who are in heaven. And, every, and of those on the earth, that's both redeemed and unredeemed. See, on the earth, you can have redeemed and unredeemed. And those under the earth, those who are in the, the, the wicked angels, the, those who are in Hades right now waiting for their judgment to be cast in uh, hell. Uh, the, as Revelation 20 says, the spirits in prison. So those in heaven, earth, under the earth. The whole point is this, comprehensive. The universe will comprehensively say this one thing, Jesus is Lord. Next time you hear somebody curse Christ, just remember that. He will bow. In fact, it should almost be like, you know, it should be like uh, fingernails on a blackboard. <laughs> you have no idea. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's... Uh, Exoma lugio. It's an intensive form. Every tongue will confess. You either confess now that Jesus is Lord and become and get saved uh, willingly, or you will confess because it's just mandatorily, if you will. You will be forced. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You will you will be forced. But not only forced. It will be obvious. He is Lord. Even in hell, you are Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord of hell. I don't know if you think of it that way. He's Lord of everything. Satan is not ahead of hell. Satan is cast. False prophet, antichrist, 
They're under judgment. Who's the one judging? Who is causing the pain of the people in hell? Christ. Okay? It just puts... Okay, do you see what I'm saying? They will declare an open public declaration that you are Lord, that you are the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the Father has made him Lord. We don't make him Lord. Sometimes you hear people say, you've got to make Jesus Lord. No, you don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord, I understand. You have to submit to his Lordship, but don't say it that way. Don't say, I've got to make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Okay, he's already been coronated. He is, he is Lord, okay? But we have to submit to his lordship. And every, everyone will, because again, remember, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So that's, those are the six steps up from his humiliation all the way to his domination. He is Lord. And then finally in the passage, let's just finish this out, in, in Philippians chapter 2, it says... The last little few verse, a little couple words. To the glory of God the Father. He is exalted to the glory of God the Father. God the Father is exalting him, but notice, it is to the glory of God the Father. He, he did the Father's will. Notice, there is no competition within the Trinity. Like you say, well, I'm exalting Christ, must be God the Father is jealous. No, to the glory of God the Father. Exalt Christ, you exalt the Father. Exalt the Father, you exalt Christ. In fact, it says that in John 13, 31. The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. Just sing praise to God, okay? You know, you don't have to distinguish, and there is no envy and jealousy within the Trinity. Which, again, goes right back to Philippians 2, verse 2. Remember the Philippians? Why do we get this? Because we try to get our own way, right? Just exalt God. Exalt Him. See, see Him for all His glory. It is the Father and the Son's supreme pleasure to glorify each other. And that's how it is. You know, at the uh, Christmas Eve service, let me just tra transition just before we are able to worship the Lord. At the Christmas Eve service, the question was asked, who is Jesus Christ? And we tried to answer that very quickly of saying He is the God-man who is the Savior and Lord. But the second most important question for you to ask is not who is Christ, you have to get that one straight, but what will you do with Christ? What will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you receive him before you die? Will you receive and submit to his lordship and that he is the only savior and put your faith and trust in him? Or will you reject him? Uh, the passage that Billy read at the Christmas program, Romans 10, verse 9, it says this, that if you confess with your mouth, that mouth the Lord Jesus, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, by doing that, you're saying yes, his resurrection proved who he was and what he did and that his sacrifice was accepted. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Have you received him, or are you still rejecting him? You can receive him right where you're at. Run to him, call on him, confess your sin. Your Savior and Lord, I submit myself to you, and I receive what you've done for me on the cross. And the final thing is, in the context of this, is, how will you serve your brethren? In light of this illustration, that's what this was. See, this was Paul saying, listen, Philippians, serve one another, esteem one another better than yourself. Look out for their own interests. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to take this? You know what, Lord? This, that's right. It's not about me. It's about you, and I will serve you. So I was listening to Chuck Swindoll, and he was talking to a Dallas theological pastors and, and uh, you know, his chapel. And this is what he said. I, it just hit me. He said, ministry is tough. It is supposed to be. If it isn't tough, it isn't ministry. It takes a toll on you. Another famous preacher said this, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And then Swindoll said this, ministry has cost me my whole life. Now, you say, well, that's a pastor. That's what it should be. No, no. Ministry should cost all of us our whole life. Why? 
Because Jesus Christ died for us. It should be like this. It shouldn't be just, you should be able to look at the elders and deacons and say, uh, you know what, I get a model for ministry. But every one of us should be doing that. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to this earth to die to serve his people. And then God highly exalted him. So what is it? Yes, Lord, I want to humble myself, serve you, serve your people. It's a joy because I know that reward is coming and you only reward those who are willing to humble themselves and serve. That should be our attitude. See, that should be our attitude. And is it your attitude today? You may say, question two, yes, I am a Christian. Question three, though, is this, are you serving? Are you serving? Are you doing it like Jesus Christ? I trust that you are. And if you are, I, let's stand. And I would hope if you are serving like that, you would, you would sing out, this is the Lord. And I will do it for you, Lord. Let's sing.